Moira Weigel is a scholar and founding editor of Logic Magazine. Originally trained in modern languages, including German and Mandarin Chinese, she now studies digital media in a global context. You might have heard of her first book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating from 2016, which is about how modern dating co-evolved with consumer capitalism and other forms of gendered work. Her second book, co-edited with Ben Tarnoff, is Voices from the Valley, Tech Workers Talk About What They Do and How They Do It. It's based in interviews that Weigel and Tarnoff conducted with workers at every level of the Bay Area tech industry, from startup founders to cafeteria workers. Her current research focuses on transnational e-commerce entrepreneurs, and that's really our main focus here, since Moira recently published an incredible overview of Amazon's reach and global strength, a lengthy report that she titled Amazon's Trickle-Down Monopoly. What's interesting is that she acknowledges the fact that we might not be particularly keen to sit and theorize the impact of the restructuring of the retail business in the 21st century, but it's actually really important. What, we might ask, does Amazon's lack of accountability to the sellers that use it indicate in terms of the nature of platform capitalism? Weigel points out that businesses like Amazon are really governed algorithmically in a way that undermines their sellers' entrepreneurial autonomy. And yet, the way that Amazon often justifies its existence is by saying that it's a staunch ally of small business. Weigel unpacks this paradox by looking at what her interviewees say about negotiating the Amazon marketplace. The lack of accountability that Amazon enjoys, despite employing hundreds of thousands of people, expresses itself through, in part, these seemingly arbitrary decisions that the company makes. So things like banning accounts, restricting certain sellers, or constraining the flow of certain products. Those decisions are often experienced by sellers as mistakes, according to Weigel's research, but in her analysis they could be part of what she describes as a sort of regulatory risk shift, a means of both policing an increasingly complicated marketplace and navigating a complex regulatory environment. Making things circuitous benefits Amazon by keeping things opaque, and understanding the makeup of the company's power is similarly muddy. It was difficult for Moira to even do this research because of how hard it was to actually locate people to interview. That difficulty itself, she says, revealed something about the way that Amazon's monopoly is maintained. As she puts it, recruiting failures were an important finding. Nonetheless, the report she's put together came about as the result of building trust with sellers and realizing that people, if given the chance, wanted to talk about their experiences in the world of Amazon. And they had specific words for describing that world. They talked about the old times, the wild west, and the jungle. These terms were ways for people to work through how they work in the system and to understand their participation in that system. The first question is really about your analysis of what you're calling Amazon's trickle-down monopoly, um, a report that adds to a rapid proliferation of critical texts that are trying to give us conceptual tools for understanding the scale of this company's dominance, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think like what's so important from my perspective and unique about your report um, is the fact that you're offering a deep qualitative analysis, qualitative analysis of like in particular third party sellers experiences of navigating what you describe 
um, in the piece as a, quote, web of globally dispersed, constantly shifting systems that Amazon comprises. Yeah. So first of all, I just really appreciate the obvious time, rigor, uh, empathy that clearly went into writing this account. Thank Um, you. But I wanted to ask you about basically what drew you to the experiences of third-party sellers. Like what gave you the sense that they were sort of the main nodes in, to again quote you, this this globally dispersed terrain uh, that Amazon defines? I uh, had gotten interested in Amazon by a sort of circuitous route. Uh, I had been doing research on right-wing media and what folks talk about as disinformation, although I don't really love that term, um, and had done a project with some friends on uh, right-wing and white nationalist publishing on Amazon that mm-hmm. led me to do a kind of deep dive into their create space self-publishing tools and sort of uh, extremist books on the platform. And long story short, in the process of doing that research, which, you know, I stand by, and I think we made some important findings, I also came to think that, you know, no offense to my former self, if one is interested in power and exploitation and issues of gender, race, identity, these kinds of questions we'd been thinking about, the book publishing on Amazon is a pretty small piece of how Amazon shapes those things. You know, Amazon uh, has a much more significant material impact on uh, different kinds of gendered, racialized, spatialized inequalities through its e-commerce and logistics and delivery. So all this to say, um, I got interested in Amazon through that project in the past uh, with my Logic co-founder and life partner, uh, Ben Darnoff. I had actually not only with Ben, through Logic Magazine uh, and then with Ben as part of a book, I'd done a lot of these anonymous oral histories with tech workers, um, people Mm -hmm. who worked at different technology companies. And so when I first started getting interested in Amazon's retail, which um, I should probably have said this up front, you know, I think we tend not to think that much about retail because maybe because it's feminized or it seems sort of frivolous or, you know, in any case, like buying pencils or diapers doesn't feel as high stakes, obviously, maybe as like fascist memes. I think we don't Mm. tend to think about Amazon retail that much. But of course, it's the core of the business. It always has been. Um, Got really interested in the retail business. Because I'd done these anonymous interviews with folks who worked at tech firms in the past, I thought, you know, I'll start out by going through my networks to try to find some Amazonians who I can interview. I did some of that. I did speak to some some Amazonians, but then quickly decided that that wasn't the right approach for this project um, for at least two reasons. (laughs) One uh, was practical, you know. Those folks are NDA'd. It's very hard to find Mm -hmm. them to talk to. Inevitably, the ones I can talk to, there's some kind of um, personal connection or political sympathy or something that leads them to talk to me. And so it's not really a random sample. Um, But equally importantly, perhaps even more importantly, the engineers I spoke to, you know, worked as engineers do on some very particular bounded like widget within the Amazon system. So An engineer, however brilliant, could explain to me, you know, the one tool they worked on that, say, informed which search results showed up in which geographic region based on compliance requirements or whatever. But I realized that to get a more global use view, rather, of the marketplace, um, 
I should I would need to turn to other people um, and and realized pretty quickly that the third party sellers um, who are the business owners who sell the majority of everything purchased through Amazon.com uh, and are sort of at the forefront of Amazon's platformization of retail, that they were the people I wanted to talk to. Um, mm -hmm. And they, in a, in a way, had a much more global knowledge of how the system worked than an engineer sure. did, right? Because their whole livelihood was hustling all the different aspects of this system. And then, of course, mm -hmm. once I'd, in theory, although this actually, they were much harder to talk to than I anticipated, but in theory, I thought, okay, this is a population that can talk to me. They're not NDA'd by Amazon. Uh, and of course, the last thing I'll say, that was both seemed practical. Uh, it seemed like a richer knowledge base in a way to draw from um, than the narrow engineering expertise. Uh, and so that was really the insight that led me to want to focus on that population. I mean, there's so much there and it's really fascinating to hear you talk about the process of sort of intuiting where you wanted to go and then realizing how to refine your focus. Um, but because you, you gestured to it, because I was fascinated by the research that you did uh, for mm -hmm. the Atlantic piece with Ava Kaufman and Francis Sang, I guess I wanted to ask you about that. Like, um, just, you know, because this is an article where you point out that Amazon controls, even if it is only a small percentage of its empire, half the market for all books and close to 90% for eBooks. Right. And like the article points out that Be Jeff Bezos himself made it clear that they want to make every book available, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. But the dangerous thing about that is that in your research, you, you show Amazon's algorithms actually recommend fascist books. Yeah. There was a, at the time of that article's publication, rampant white supremacy and fascism in much of its online archive. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have, you know, like Amazon removed some things, I guess, after a ProPublica Pro report, right? Yeah. Um, do you have any sense of like what's been done there or just you've kind of left that research behind? Well, it's interesting that you ask this because they did. Uh, my memory is that article published in April 2020. Um, and, you know, we had been focused on white nationalist and extremist publishing, which we showed Amazon, you know, provided a very important hosting and distribution infrastructure. Starting with the pandemic, Amazon also became a major site for the dissemination of various kinds of misleading information about COVID, anti-vax material, sort of QAnon material. So in a way, that problem just expanded. Um, my impression of Amazon, both from my research on the books um, and, and my research on retail, is that like any platform, its sort of default is to let anyone post anything and that it's like mm. they'll take things down relative in a relatively capricious and opaque fashion based on complaints. Um, I mean, I think it is an authentically hard problem how to moderate that self-publishing platform or book publishing platform. But at the same time, we were disturbed by the realization um, that, as I said, you know, to the extent that Amazon was delivering these books through Prime, uh, storing them in its warehouse in some cases, Amazon was really effectively subsidizing and, and providing the infrastructure for the distribution of these books. And so if previously, if I had wanted to get neo-Nazi material from a particular publisher, I would have had to send a postcard with a check to a mailbox in Nebraska. Now I could order it and have it in two days. Another thing that was interesting to me about that topic and remains interesting to me was also about how books as these kinds of almost residual cultural forms in a digital environment 
mm-hmm. retained a certain kind of totemic authority, even if in reality a self-published book on Amazon is no different from a post on a website or a blog. Um, I was interested in how the folks publishing and distributing those books sort of pointed to and invoked the form of a book, right, Um, Mm -hmm. as giving them a certain kind of cultural authority and expertise. I can't even remember how much made it into the ProPublica piece, but Francis Tsung had scraped all this Reddit data and looked Mm -hmm. for places where people shared Amazon links on Reddit. And um, it was very interesting to us to see how in certain right-wing discussion spaces, the book, people would sort of point to the existence of a book um, to prove their point. So anyway, there was sort of like a residual cultural authority in the book, even if in effect, it's not really very different than a blog post. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and what, you know, what I get out of reading that is that like this, um, this, this kind of, you know, dark web of, of, of publishing, uh, it, which is driven by the algorithm, um, you know, people are kind of funneled into it is a kind of, um, you know, world building in terms of like allowing white supremacists to imagine an ethno state basically. Um, and that, that there's a kind of, yeah, like, a um, you know, uh, Ben in his book, internet for the people talks about the issues with like just describing, these things like echo chambers, filter bubbles, and so on. But there was like an odd echo chamber, it seems, uh, developing within that specific site of publishing. In your essay or your report, you know, uh, this account of Amazon's trickle-down monopoly, one in which you're you're listening to um, people's stories in yeah. terms of, you know, attempting to get, as you put it, a global use view of the marketplace. And I love that it is about like listening to people, like yeah. listening having to juggle care labor in this incredibly competitive business of third-party selling. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask about how you conducted the interviews, you know, like um, your your approach to that. Because, yeah, you mentioned you co-authored a book with Ben called Voices of the Valley that is doing the work of giving people within this rapidly changing digital economy an opportunity to kind of narrate their own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um I can see you talking about like gradually learning things through these interviews, narrating that. Um, and I wondered if you could kind of speak to how you developed an effective way of opening up conversations and incrementally learning what people's experiences were rather than just like asking them very pointedly, um, how you kind of tease that out. And if you could speak to what you call the value of lore and storytelling uh, yeah. and how you sort of just stayed attentive to the language that people use building that trust as, as people recounted their experiences. So when I started this research, I thought, you know, I, again, actually, my friend Francis Tsung, who'd worked on that ProPublica project with Ava Kaufman and me, um, I talked to Francis. He's has computer science and quantitative skills that I don't have about what I was doing. And Francis, you know, initially I thought, okay, we'll scrape Amazon data that somehow has contact information for these businesses. I'll contact, you know, a thousand of them and hope that 50 are willing to talk to me or whatever it is. Um, Francis used data that Amazon makes available called verified seller information um, Mm -hmm. to try to scrape contact information for sellers that I thought I could use for this purpose. Um, In September, 2020, uh, we got something like five to 10,000 addresses and data points um, about these sellers. Amazon does not give phone numbers or emails. They, and to state the obvious, um, 
I couldn't, you can of course contact a seller through Amazon, but I didn't want to contact people through Amazon because the whole point was to keep them anonymous. Um, sure. And so anyway, I, I set out like armed with this CSV file with uh, some undergrad research assistants. I thought, okay, you know, I'll find people to talk to. We very quickly realized this didn't work at all. <laughs> we spent a couple of weeks trying to connect those street addresses to phone numbers or email addresses, contacting people um, in both China and the United States. And I should say, um, about 50% by volume of third-party seller sales are from China directly to the U.S. marketplace. So about half um, of, of the people I was looking to interview uh, were located physically uh, in China. And, um, and we basically realized that that data was not useful for anything, <laughs> um, which initially I was really discouraged by. And at one point was so discouraged by that I thought, like, I'm going to have to give up on this project because I can't find anyone to talk to me. Uh, in a few weeks of spending most of our time trying to find people to talk to this way, uh, I reached a grand total of one human being uh, <laughs> who, as soon as she figured out who I was on the phone, just said, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Thank you. And hung up. Oh, um, right. And initially, as I said, I was very discouraged by this, um, but realized that these failures, these recruiting failures were actually an important finding. Um, and they taught me two things. One, uh, or there were sort of two findings in there. One was that Amazon, the data that Amazon provides is basically useless for anyone trying to get in touch with a seller uh, outside of Amazon's channels, which I think in itself is actually kind of a significant finding. And many, I mean, I could elaborate on the ways in which it's useless, um, but you'll have things like dozens of businesses registered to one street address in Shenzhen and are like mm. businesses registered to something that's a PO box in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest, in the US or something. Um, mm. But anyway, uh, so that, those, that data is useless uh, and it's supposed to be, you know, a source of transparency and accountability and so on. But I also realized that sellers are really secretive and really paranoid about talking to anyone. Um, and everything I learned subsequently when I did manage to sort of enter this world bore that out. Um, and there's sort of three reasons for that. One is that sellers are really frightened of Amazon. Most of them are completely almost completely dependent on Amazon for their businesses and their livelihood. Um, they're really worried about irritating Amazon. Uh, relatedly, because they do most of their business through Amazon and earn their livelihood through it, they don't really need the kind of outside attention that like a startup founder or a brand selling through other channels might want. Um, they sort yeah. of don't need anyone but Amazon. And finally, particularly for the sellers in the US, but really for everyone, um, their knowledge of how to source their products, usually outside the United States, um, that's sort of their whole thing. You know, that's their whole edge. Um, it's a very competitive marketplace. And so I, I can't tell you how many times someone I was interviewing was sort of skeptical or assumed that I was trying to like get information for my own business or sort of spy on them or something. It was hard to find people to talk to that way. There really was a point at which I was like, oh, God, I've done all this preparatory work um, and, you know, cleared IRB review and everything like for this project. And actually, it's just not going to be feasible because I can't find anyone to talk to me. Um, I eventually did manage to sort of get to know a few folks who are gatekeepers in the Amazon seller community on the U.S., actually both the U.S. and China side, I ended up using that strategy. And then through them to get personal introductions 
And then interestingly, perhaps this follows from the secrecy and sort of paranoia of the community. Once I had that, I often found that people really wanted to talk um, Mm. and like wanted to talk a lot about their experiences. Um, And I think, you know, I do like one of the probably the single thing that's made me happiest with the report is that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the seller community. (laughs) Um, And I think um, some people I spoke to at least actually appreciated the value of trying to get a global view of it and its history because it just isn't information that's been written down. Um, And it's very overwhelming how fast it changes. So sorry, I've been talking for a long time and I kind of, oh, you were asking about interview technique and stuff. Sure. If you want to speak to that, I mean, you've given me so much to think through already, but feel free. You know, um, I mean, you're, you're narrating it also in, in the report itself, right? Like right. saying like the, the tactic of, for example, asking people for advice yeah. on how they do what they do rather than just like directly asking them, like, what's your business? How do you operate? Right. Like that was, right. that was pretty crucial. It seems. Yeah. I think there are a lot of different aspects to it. So most of these, I want to say all of the interviews that I cite in the report, certainly most, and I think all were conducted remotely over Mm -hmm. some kind of video chatting platform. I always laugh at myself because I got the fellowship that enabled me to begin this research. I think I found out I'd gotten it on February 19th, 2020. Um, And I was like, great, I'm gonna go to Guangdong. I'm gonna like do all this research in China. And I was like, no, I'm gonna go in person and observe things. And obviously that didn't happen. I think, you know, there's a part of me that, of course, would have loved to go to Shenzhen and like hang out in the businesses of some of the people I interviewed. Um, In a way, though, I think it was appropriate to the topic that I did all these interviews remotely because all the people I spoke to were also living mostly through screens and their businesses are mostly conducted through screens. So it was sort of normal to them uh, to be just talking through Zoom or Tencent meetings or or whatever it was. Since I was conducting these remotely, yeah, I don't know. You establish different rapport with people, different people in different ways. I think, um, you know, I think small talk about the pandemic. I have little kids. I was actually pregnant when I was doing a lot of these interviews. And I feel like, I don't know if you could see on Zoom, but that would often somehow come up and people would have different ways of reacting or connecting to that. Or a lot of the moms I interviewed would sort of connect over being moms. Um, so there's sort of a basic uh, human connection element. I did find that, for instance, because people are so secretive, um, people tended to respond better to questions along the lines of, like, what would you tell someone who's just starting out? Or um, what are the biggest mistakes people make? Uh, rather than, you know, asking them immediately who their suppliers are and what their advertising tactic mm-hmm. is. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I could take that, you know, and, and sort of go in two different directions. Like, yeah, wherever you want. <laughs> you know, the, the, the big thing to me is, is obviously to think through kind of U.S. China relations. Mm-hmm. Like I know that, you know, in the study, in the report that you were studying in Beijing in uh, 2011. Yeah. Um, around the time, I think that, you know, Amazon was really struggling to establish a market in China. Yeah. Um, which like, I'm, I'm su- super curious about that experience. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about sort of how you, um, developed a command of Mandarin and how that <laughs> helped conduct these interviews. Um, so maybe we'll get to that. But I guess I wanted to ask, like, just a, a sense of because you, you, you've talked about this kind of logistics empire mm. and some of its gendered and 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 and, you know, racialized kinds of implications. Um, 
you know, one of the things that organizes your report is a series of metaphors that describe like the trajectory of Amazon's rise. There are these three key phrases that come out of the interviews that you kind of use to, um, you know, explain the epochs of yeah. Amazon's history. There's the old times, the wild west and the jungle. And then actually you talk about like the, the rocket ship at a certain point at the end. Yeah. Can you describe just basically like what uh, the sort of pivotal moments were for each of these distinct eras, just to give people a, a sense of, um, yeah, yeah for sure. And that's reminding me that I didn't answer your question about lore. And I had the only thing I had written <laughs> down while you were asking was I just said the word lore on my piece of nice. paper in front of Great me. Great word. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't take credit for the word. I think um, it was Rigoberto Lara Guzman and Ranjit Singh, who were also at Data and Society. They still are. But when I was, they were two folks at Data and Society. Um, we're working on this workshop called Parables of AI and thinking a lot about lore and parables and forms of storytelling about technical systems uh, as mm. a kind of knowledge about them. So I feel like I have to cite Rigo and Ranjit on that one. Um, yeah. So honestly, since as I've mentioned, it's such a complicated system, Amazon's third-party retail business. It's so elaborate. It's so global. Um, and it really hasn't been written about in any kind of systemic way, like there's advice literature and books about how to make a billion dollars on Amazon or something, um, but those get outdated very quickly uh, and so on. I felt that for the first months of doing these interviews, I really was just trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like I was literally just trying to figure out in a lot of ways um, how the marketplace worked uh, and how people navigated it. Over the course of those interviews, and I interviewed merchants who've been on it for different amounts of time, it started to strike me, and I guess social scientists, we call this saturation or something, but mm -hmm. it started to strike me that I was like hearing similar stories again and again, or there were certain parts of stories um, that were similar to one another. And I noticed that there were these turning points in the history of the marketplace uh, that many different interviewees uh, seem to all recognize and sort of have in their minds in common. And I also noticed uh, that at least on the English speaking side of things, there were these common phrases that people use to refer to them. These phrases um, of the old times, the wild west and the jungle. I realized after doing dozens of these interviews um, that, how to put it, that these terms themselves reflected elements of how the people I was interviewing understood the system and understood their place in the system that were salient. Um, and again, the very fact that there were these fairly abrupt and it seemed widely, if not universally recognized breaks in between the time periods um, that that itself was a salient finding about how Amazon works and the way it sort of changes the game through new products and policies very abruptly um, mm -hmm. at various times. Now, that's part of how it makes sellers, um, you know, both gives them opportunity, but also makes them extremely vulnerable to its uh, mm -hmm. to its shifting prerogatives. Um, so the, the way old days, the old times, I only spoke to a few people who had sold during that time because it was a much smaller marketplace in that era. Folks generally use that phrase to refer to the time period before the late 2000, 2000 aughts uh, when Amazon 
basically just functioned like an online catalog, uh, a bit mm-hmm. more like Etsy, uh, not, excuse me, not Etsy, eBay, well, maybe also Etsy, but a bit more like eBay, right. which of course was the original inspiration for the third party marketplace. Um, at that time, basically uh, sellers could pay a fee to list their products on the site. And then when someone placed an order, Amazon would send them that person's name and address and the seller would send it to them. And Amazon just handled the payment um, and the display. Mm -hmm. And then there was the second era that folks referred to as the Wild West of really dramatic expansion and some chaos. But it took me a long time to sort of put together what the operative changes were. Um, But it was clearly after Amazon created Prime, which it did in 2006, um, and then created a service they call Fulfillment by Amazon, FBA, uh, for sellers, which meant that anyone who wanted to pay $39.99 or its 2010 equivalent uh, could open a seller account and send in goods to Amazon warehouses to be sold. And what this meant in practice, um, I think in the report, I talk about the first phase is like the catalog era. The second phase was opening up Amazon's physical infrastructure um, so that sellers could and indeed um, basically are obligated to, for a variety of reasons, ship through Amazon's prime services. Uh, And that way they also sort of subsidized the growth of of Amazon's fulfillment services, right? Because they're paying fees to use it. Uh, And then this last era, the jungle. And I think the people, I think we're all kind of familiar with tech people talking about the wild west. The jungle, Mm -hmm. I realized it's funny, talking to Ranjit and Rigo, who I mentioned from Data and Society, they were encouraging me to riff on like, what's the jungle? How is the jungle different from the Wild West? Just like an image. Yeah. Um, and they're both, you know, neo-colonial images of nation state and uh, imperial expansion. Right. Um, they're both imaginaries of like violence done to indigenous people and land and resources taken and so on. Um, but the jungle is like darker and denser and thicker and maybe you need a guide, right? It's like a different kind of imaginary space. I I came to think the jungle refers to two things. First, it refers to the fact that the marketplace got a lot more complicated as it globalized mm-hmm. and a lot more dangerous in a certain respect uh, in that competitors all over the world could suddenly attack your listing. I think it also reflected the growing dominance of Amazon's own branding, right? Because it's like Amazon, the Amazon River, the jungle. Um, And the growth in the mid to late 2010s of all these different uh, kinds of services and courses and service providers promising to help sellers navigate Amazon, um, most of which tried to pick up, you know, associate themselves with Amazon by using the branding. So there's a famous data company called Jungle Scout. Uh, and there are all kinds of bros on YouTube and now TikTok uh, who will tell you about the law of the jungle and so on. Um, and so I think in different ways, it pointed to the growing density and complexity of Amazon's marketplace and also of this social or parasocial world um, that surrounded it uh, and brought people onto it. So I think also by kind of spending time with and thinking about these metaphors was part of what led me to this trickle-down monopoly concept that ended up governing the report. It kind of implies two contradictory things, Um, one of which is that Amazon's marketplace is the land, right? If the Wild West is like a land rush where those who can, backed by the power of the state back east, like go and grab land um, from indigenous people and other people, um, 
in that metaphor, it's like the seller is going to grab their piece of Amazon, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. then, but in another way, um, and this, the second sense of the Wild West or the jungle made a deep impression on me because so much of what I talked to sellers about was navigating Amazon's bureaucracy and rules and like sort of opaque governance. Um, in a second way, Amazon isn't the land, but rather the state that's sort of like sending the individual seller out to like source stuff for its marketplace, whether it's in a bargain bin in a Best Buy in Illinois or mm -hmm. factories in Zhejiang province or whatever. Um, and so that contradiction between seeing Amazon as the land that was their opportunity and then seeing Amazon as like the state that was sending them out as their agent, I came to think was actually quite interesting on the one hand, they're sort of bossed around and often mistreated and exploited by Amazon in all kinds of ways. There's a new study out just a couple of days ago that shows that the average percentage of their revenues that sellers pay to Amazon is well over 50% of each sale, um, which is a shocking number. The previous mm -hmm. study like figure had been 34. It just goes up and up. So they know they're sort of bossed around and controlled and exploited, but also see it as a site of opportunity and in some cases their best opportunity. Um, and so I was interested in that ambivalence because I think that's the heart of what hegemony is, right? It's like people being yeah. invested in upholding the thing that exploits them. Um, so anyway, sorry, that's a long answer, but that's part of what interested me about these, these terms that kept surfacing in the interviews, at least with the English speakers. Yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely right to kind of conceive of Amazon as like a hegemon. I know, you know, Ben writes in Internet for the People about these platforms as more like sovereigns, like operating like sovereigns. Yeah. And like this, is, but but you're like mining that ambivalence. And I think like this is the thing, it, despite there being, it seems, a diminished ability now in the jungle for sellers to succeed within the marketplace, like. Your report notes that in 2021, there were more than 6 million unique sellers active on Amazon mm -hmm. and, that, and that nearly 2,000 new sellers open accounts every day. Yeah, I think it's nearly 4,000 actually. It's like 3,700. Wow. All those numbers like with a grain of salt because it's always hard to know those numbers. But yeah, sure. it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so like this overwhelming number of people are 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 also being forced to become, as you put it, Amazon's agents. Yeah. And so there's like, it's that give and take where- you know, you, you have opportunity, but you also, it comes with a, a compromise of like your autonomy being eroded as you have to become like a little Amazon, basically, right. to use your phrase. Um, and so like, what's interesting to me, and you kind of gestured to it in terms of the bureaucracy, is that like, there's a part where you note that the sellers often focused on Amazon's failures to properly govern its platform. Yeah. But like, in your analysis, Amazon is governing its platform very calculatedly, like in a way right. that is always appropriate to its interests. Right. And so like how much of the trickle down monopoly is built on a model of constantly moving things around, altering the rules of the game to maintain dominance? And does this kind of relate to th this idea that you um, that you offer that actually centralization and decentralization are not opposites, but kind of yeah. paired? I think, so I think you're pointing towards a few important things and it's funny, I'm actually trying to write an academic paper now that's related to something you asked and I'm still sort of like wrestling with this idea. So I often heard one of the findings or learnings that was most surprising to me when I started talking to sellers 
and now I just take utterly for granted, um, is about how glitchy the platform is or how often people were suspended for reasons that made no sense. I mean, really no sense. And what shocked me uh, initially about hearing this, because I think a lot of us have heard in some of the popular antitrust discourse about Amazon, like copying products and that kind of mistreatment. Um, Mm -hmm. But what shocked me was I thought, you know, like, this should be against Amazon's interest too. You know, if they suspend, I mean, actually I'm continuing to do research in this area. And just last week I was dealing with a company um, that has lost one over $1.5 million in the months since Amazon suspended one of its top products for reasons that nobody can explain. Like it's some, and anyway, I won't bore you with the details, but it's like the two Amazon teams in charge of this don't talk to each other. Um, the product has been flagged by some NLP algorithm that for some wrong reason and, and so on. And so anyway, when I initially started hearing about this kind of thing, I thought like, well, that doesn't make any sense because Amazon's losing its 55% or whatever cut sure. of every sale. Um, but I think I think when I when I spoke to sellers, sellers experience these governance phenomena, let's call them, as mistakes, as like errors or glitches. Yeah. Over time, I came, and that makes quite a lot of sense. And interestingly, I'd say, you know, I think that sellers expressed to me much more sort of moral outrage or frustration over this kind of thing than over the copying products, which they would sort of took for granted as something that could happen. Um but from when I think about it from Amazon's perspective, these glitches may be rational within its sort of global calculus, right? Um, and so to take the example of the ceiling fans that the person can't sell because they've been suspended for making uh, antibacterial health claim or something, which is a true story, um, <laughs> someone who lost over a million bucks while waiting to reach a human who could help clarify that. Um, yeah. From, okay, from the seller's perspective, that makes no sense. It's like the ceiling fan is not a medicine. Like, why would that happen? That makes no sense. Um, from Amazon's perspective, facing new EPA, you know, Environmental Protection Agency rules about pesticides um, and new pressure around health claims during COVID, it might be a perfectly rational decision um, to over-optimize, to suspend everyone who might have something to do with that, um, you know, to sort of overfit. Uh, the algorithmic suspension of those people if it prevents uh, a government lawsuit or more intense regulation and so on. Um, and so I'm, I think that this phrase isn't catchy at all because every time I use it, the person I'm talking to is like, what? But I've started thinking of this as a kind of regulatory risk shift where I'm like, Amazon passes on the risk of regulation to the sellers in a way by over regulating them around particular things um, at the same time that they fail yeah. to regulate around other things. Um, but I think that the core... The core issue that it highlights is Amazon, and this is common to platforms, you might even say this is what a platform is, um, but is Amazon's lack of any kind of accountability to the sellers who use it. Um, And sellers sign business agreements uh, that forego many kinds of redress against Amazon in the case of wrongdoing. Amazon can just hold their funds in a lot of, you know, because Amazon holds all their money for them and usually pays out on a every two week basis. Um, Amazon can seize their funds. It has all their inventory. Um, and so I think uh, what these kind of little stories at the local level, the bigger issue they point to is Amazon's incredible market power. And I think that that deep 
powerlessness of even a quite large company. I mean, some of the companies I interviewed made tens of millions of dollars in revenue a year, um, which is fairly big. Uh, but even a pretty large player or someone, you know, I would interview thinking like, you know, this person makes more money than I than I do. Like this isn't, a, um, you know, isn't an impoverished victim or something. Um, mm-hmm. Are very vulnerable to Amazon and to these business agreements that um, that really mean they kind of have to take what the platform gives them. Yeah, they become little Amazons, but as you point out, they're just they they lack the capital. And and capital in the sense of a, a control of wealth, a marshalling of an entire um chain of of command, of supply. Um and and yeah, I mean like this kind of policing through glitchiness, um, over optimization. It's like fascinating to try and think through it, but you know, the thing that grounds the the report is the the lived experience of people within um, this this network. And so like in terms of like just sort of building off of what you were saying about the the administrative rationality uh, of Amazon, like it is the case that there are these problems that uh, need to be like addressed. For example, you know, people buying reviews, becoming normative, yeah. right? just like what everybody does. And Amazon is faced with the challenge of having to police that practice. And it Mm -hmm. does it in a way that is such a kind of brute crackdown method of just Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, uh, like in May 2021, I guess they exposed 200,000 accounts engaged in a fake review ring. Yeah. And the way that it polices it is to just like ban everybody, right? Yeah, they banned 70. There was a data breach that exposed, uh, there were 200,000 participants in the fake review ring. So some of those were sellers mm. and some of them were the people they were buying fake reviews from. Um, and Amazon just summarily suspended 75,000 seller accounts <laughs> in China um, overnight. And they ultimately permanently banned, I think, 6,000 of them. There were actually a, mm-hmm. a small group of electronics companies hit in that ban, we're suing Amazon to try to get their money back because Amazon has their, um, you know, their revenues. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know what came of that lawsuit. But yeah, anyway, that's the thing. I just was going to say that was the ban I think you're thinking of. Maybe that's a good way of kind of uh, moving into discussion of how Amazon stands at a really, in in an important position in terms of like, um, you know, uh, determining to some extent relationships between the United States and China. I mean, eventually Amazon achieves expansion into China, but only really after uh, the 2008 financial crisis, you say. That's the turning point where, you know, uh, uh, China creates 132 pilot zones for cross-border e-commerce where it had been resistant uh, before that crisis. Um so like in, in the end, you're, you're, you're talking about how these, these three figures in some ways are, are certainly like um, nationalistic framings. And there yeah. are obviously like certain psychic assumptions, internalized xenophobia kind of baked into this choice of metaphors. I'm curious about that because you also note that the racist terms with which U.S. sellers describe the problems of the jungle and having to compete with China. So like you mentioned Donald Trump a few times in the report, um, but there isn't an explicit engagement with like racism and nationalism really until the appendix. And in the mm. appendix, you mentioned that um, your current research is looking at how Amazon mediates race and gender relations. Um, given how now we're regularly talking about strained U.S.-China relations, I was hoping you could kind of elaborate on that work and some of the challenges of doing that work now. 
So Amazon tried to enter the Chinese marketplace uh, with their acquisition of a Chinese e-commerce firm called Joyo uh, in the 2000 odds. I'm gonna say 2009, although I should fact check that. Maybe it was 2004, and then they rebranded it in 2009. Uh, mm -hmm. Amazon basically, over the course of the 2010s,、uh, when I used to see Amazon bikes in the apartment complex I lived in in Beijing,、uh, tried and failed to become an e-commerce company within China that Chinese people would use to shop from.、Uh, sort of failed to compete with Alibaba and Pinduoduo and Taobao and the other big Chinese e-commerce marketplaces.、Uh, mm -hmm. By So here's the time I'm in the mid by the mid 2015 excuse me mid 2010s by 2015 whether or not you know they don't fully pull out having a Chinese marketplace until 2019、uh, you can still buy stuff from Amazon.cn、uh, it's like a very small less than one percent of the Chinese e-commerce marketplace in China but by the mid 2010s Amazon realized something which other e-commerce companies like AliExpress, the Alibaba subsidiary,、um, and Wish.com had already realized, which is that if you could use your platform to become a kind of portal from Chinese manufacturers directly to American consumers, cutting out middle people, middlemen、uh, who had mediated that before, you could offer consumers really cheap products.、Um, And so, in 2015, Amazon made this choice to open its marketplace directly to sellers with Chinese IP addresses,、uh, and then began a very active、uh, recruitment effort,、uh, which is ongoing, to bring Chinese merchants onto the platform. And indeed, also collaborated with many Chinese cities and provinces to host conferences and trainings and so on. And that's sort of the beginning of. The rise of what we might call Amazon in China, but it's just important to understand that when we say Amazon in China, we don't mean Chinese consumers. We mean a kind of like portal from、uh, the factory or small capitalist who owns several factories or sourcing companies or whatever in China to the U.S. marketplace.、Um, there's a notorious memo that some Amazon exec wrote in 2015. Basically, acknowledging, and this was reported in Brad Stone's book Amazon Unbound, but also people in the community have talked about it to, about it to me.、Uh, there's a notorious memo where an Amazon exec basically acknowledges that doing this is going to totally destroy a bunch of U.S. Amazon businesses,、um, uh, particularly retail、uh, apparel businesses, excuse me,、uh, and electronics businesses, and so on. And he sort of says, "But we have to do it、um, to bring down our、wow. prices and." And again, I think sort of segue a bit to the race and sinophobia and new Cold War questions. I have、mm -hmm. to confess, I feel some sort of normative ambivalence around all of it because you know I've interviewed a bunch of Chinese merchants at this point, and why shouldn't you know the factory that makes the coats that sell well on Amazon in you know in Suzhou? Why shouldn't they capture more of the value of those coats、um, that they make? I don't know.、Mm -hmm. um, It, that part,、mm -hmm. that bit, is sort of complicated, but it's certainly true. There's sort of two big points I want to make, and that I'm thinking about in further research since the report. One is that I think we tend to think of the entrepreneur or entrepreneurship or small business、um, as if it's somehow separate from politics or an alternative to corporate bureaucracy and and just like the heroic individual.、Uh, but of course, entrepreneurship is. A state project. Entrepreneurs are backed by、uh, low interest rate state-backed loans.、Uh, they're often given certain tax breaks and incentives, and、um, 
in some cases, even direct subsidies. And there are various policies that states make to encourage small businesses and entrepreneurship. Uh, it so happens that that is true in China as it is here in the United States, even if it's maybe not quite the same kind of religion um, as small business is in the United States. And so Amazon often speaks publicly uh, and, you know, small business in the U.S. also has this particular history with the civil rights movement and post-civil rights movement and black capitalism uh, and sort of this idea that small business and there's also this idea of ethnic capital that sort of immigrants and historically marginalized racialized communities and women uh, can who maybe would have faced prejudice and discrimination in a corporate world can start small businesses. Um, that's like a big part of our national religion uh, in a certain way. Uh, and so I think that's why Amazon, particularly in the past few years, as it's come under criticism uh, for its monopoly or or quasi-monopolistic power has often invoked this image of the small business and of themselves as the allies of small business. Um, and part of the way I want to push back or qualify or bring some reality to those claims is not just by saying, well, yes, but these businesses are governed algorithmically in a way that really undermines their entrepreneurial autonomy or means they don't have mm -hmm. the kind of freedom that we associate with small business. But the other way is that I want to say... Um, Half the small businesses, as I've said, are in China. Amazon never talks about that. And indeed, I know they get very upset when other people talk about that. Uh, which again, I'm not saying there's anything bad about that on its face, but it and it's really if we want to historicize it, right? I think in general, like most things Amazon does, someone else did before. Most things Amazon does, Walmart did before. Walmart went yeah. to China in the 80s, 70s and 80s, uh, established extensive contacts with factories on the ground. So Amazon just sort of added this extra platformization dimension that now they don't even need, um, they don't even need the mm -hmm. sourcing office in Shenzhen, right? They'll just get the merchants right onto the platform. Walmart now, of course, is imitating that with their own third-party platform. Um, but it's not, so it's not that any of this is utterly unprecedented. I think it's just that when Amazon talks about small business, I sort of want to remind people that it's like, yeah, and what we're talking about is like the next step of what Amazon, of, excuse me, what Walmart did, reorganizing global supply chains, not necessarily mm -hmm. like a mom and pop on, on the corner of, of Main Street or whatever. Um, but mm -hmm. they, Amazon invokes that mom and pop imaginary uh, often and strategically. Yeah. And misleadingly. Yeah. Yes. Um, if I can ask one more, sure. um, you know, it, there's this sense in the report of the kind of, you know, pivotal place of crisis, uh, uh, the kind of, you know, productive kind of work of crisis in a sense. Yeah. If you could sort of share your sense of the composition of a system where companies can benefit from crisis in this way. I mean, you're mm -hmm. partly trying to critique the system using, for example, uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's notion of predatory inclusion. Um, but you're also sort of uh, like bringing that into conversation with uh, a growing global antitrust movement um, mm -hmm. that tries to make apparent the kind of predatory nature of Amazon's monopoly power. So, mm -hmm. you know, like you, you cite the 2020 report of the House Judiciary Subcommittee mm -hmm. on Competition and Digital Markets, um, where it acknowledges the thing that sellers have come to expect and basically accept these anti-competitive behaviors, this self-preferencing. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of imagine a pathway to achieving the kind of antitrust action that would restore some degree of fairness to the system 
I mean, it can't just be a boycott, right? Like, I don't know if you shop on Amazon. I'm guessing you don't. No, I do. I do sometimes. I do sometimes. Oh, okay, okay. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it. I do. But like, so a boycott just won't work. So what is that? What does that pathway look like? Do you have a sense of of how exposing the, as it were, like predatory nature of of preying on crisis um, can can do some some of this kind of political work? To answer the first part of your question, I think crisis has moments of crisis have been central to Amazon's growth. There was the moment in 2008 of the financial crisis and after that led a lot of sellers to seek uh, either a replacement for lost income or supplemental income uh, by selling through the platform. I won't go into the nitty gritty, although it's fascinating to me, but the sort of crisis of brick and mortar retail and of big box stores uh, has also been indirectly part you know, the so-called retail apocalypse has also been mm-hmm. part of the Amazon story to the extent that uh, in the Wild West era, those stores became an important sourcing site where sellers would go buy stuff at, you know, the closing target outside uh, St. Louis and and send it to Amazon to be sold to consumers elsewhere. And then, of course, COVID um, was this moment of rapid growth in 2020 and 2021, although it stopped in 2022 uh, for Amazon. Uh, and was widely perceived as accelerating the development of e-commerce. Um, I think there's a lot to say to qualify that. I also should say I've started to think, I've started to actually really question whether e-commerce is even a meaningful category anymore because basically every mm. brick and mortar store has an e-commerce element to it. And, you know, mm. my random independent coffee shop or you know the Lebanese store restaurant where I order lunch sometimes like has an app has a website where I can order through an app so I've started to wonder about the extent to which these things can even be separated anymore but um mm-hmm. but anyway COVID was was thought of or perceived by Wall Street and by various other people um and for a time was a kind of spur to great growth uh on the China side Without getting into the weeds, uh, I think state support for overseas e-commerce or what they call cross-border e-commerce was motivated after 2008 by this need to sort of reinvent the entrepreneurial economy. So yeah, it's a company that grows as capitalism does in general through crisis. Um, In terms of antitrust, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it seemed Mm -hmm. like there was a moment uh, a few years ago, maybe a year or so ago, where there was all this political momentum around antitrust in the United States. Um, And in China, there was some antitrust action against Alibaba. For instance, uh, EU regulators uh, have imposed some fines, UK regulators, um, and taken certain steps against Amazon. But it doesn't seem to me that there's the same momentum and political possibility around that now. Although maybe I'm wrong, you know, the FTC... Is, which is headed by Lena Khan, who became academic famous for her article on Amazon, Amazon's monopoly, uh, is certainly sending some signals uh, about aggressive antitrust. And Biden last month in January uh, wrote this editorial in the Wall Street Journal calling on Democrats and Republicans to collaborate on antitrust legislation. So I don't know uh, politically what seems most likely to happen in that arena in the next little while. I have to say, I also don't know how immediately it would benefit the people I wrote about. I think um, it's not not glamorous. It's not glamorous to say, or it's not maybe intellectually exciting, but I feel as if 
so much of what I heard about, um, the core thing that would make the lives of the sellers better would be like better customer support or seller support and like clearer <laughs> policies. Um, you know, in the long run, they certainly almost everyone I talked to was trying to diversify and sell more on other platforms and was worried about their dependency on Amazon. So I think if Amazon could become a smaller percentage of the e-commerce marketplace, that would make almost everyone I talked to, if not every single person happy. Um, mm -hmm. But I think in the shorter term, the real problem that folks confronted every day was this just total lack of responsibility or accountability to their sellers. Um, so I almost wonder if in addition to, or as a complement to antitrust initiatives, there's not a need for more sort of algorithmic impact assessment or oversight of how Amazon governs the marketplace and I don't know how it would be done, but a need to impose some greater responsibility on Amazon in terms of how it treats the sellers, that it's like you can't suspend someone and while they lose a million dollars without explaining to them what's going wrong. Mm -hmm. I'll say one thing that is a little bit more exciting or galvanizing maybe. One phenomenon I learned about and I've heard more about um, over the course of doing the research or sellers forming these collectives or cooperatives in a couple places in the United States, at least in the hopes of gaining mm. a little more bargaining power with Amazon um, or, you know, having a better chance of getting the attention of someone in seller support who could help them or whatever it might be. I think the sort of pie in the sky thing that I can't uh, help but think about when I see those those groups forming is, you know, what if those uh, cooperatives were able to get bigger and more organized uh, and somehow recognize what they have in common with like the Amazon unionization efforts um, or labor yeah. movement efforts around the company? To be honest, I think that's fairly, uh, that's a long-term or sort of pie in the sky thought. Uh, the politics of small business people are not always so friendly to the politics of labor. Um, mm -hmm. But that certainly is one other kind of inkling or takeaway from the research in terms of what what could be done mm -hmm. this is like invaluable research that you've done i really feel like well thank you so much thanks so much for your enthusiasm i just think it'll contribute to the effort that you're you know this kind of long-term effort um the the narrative driven kind of empathetic approach that you take which also offers like as you as i think you rightly say a kind of unprecedentedly systemic view of how people exist and try to subsist within this network. So um, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you.